There, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. What's this? Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me get some coffee here. Mm. Thanks for that. It is 5.45 a.m., which is usually when I record my intros. And this here is episode 14 of Bleeding Ink, the show that aims to even the publishing playing ground. We are a legion of crafty writers and hustling authors. Tune in every other week on iTunes or Stitcher. And for those of you who've rated the show, thanks. I love it. It's so helpful and so ha- it makes me so happy. Just keep keep it up, please. And if you haven't had a chance, just head on over to iTunes and click the little star button for uh, forever, however many stars you feel the show is deserving of. Follow me on Twitter, that's JSL Author, and visit bleedingink.fm, that's B-L-E-E-D-I-N-G-I-N-K dot F-M, not dot com, dot F-M. And you can sign up for giveaways, my mailing list. Um, I dish out tools, tips, updates for everything you'd ever need to get your writing done, be a better author, to learn more about authors, and do all the great things that us writers like to do. Now, you may be wondering, uh, J.S. Leonard, uh, I'm an indie author, but you keep interviewing traditionally published folks. That's not very indie, is it? Sure it is. Discovering what traditional publishers offer authors will allow you to reproduce those offerings. It gives perspective, shows you what you're up against, and you never know the traditional route may be a better choice for you. I'm fond of the entire publishing spectrum. Self-published, a somewhere in between hybrid, Puritan for niche imprints, a big five champion. Sure, why not? We are all snowflakes with unique sticky preferences. In this episode, I interview a traditionally published author. She will teach you a thing or two about craft and targeting a wide swath of audiences. Victoria V. Schwab has published with Disney Hyperion, Tor, and Harper Greenwillow, who selected Victoria's musically woven fantasy stories for their ability to leap onto your mind's stage. She writes for the young, she writes for the not so young. She excels in treating both to worlds that defy imagination and characters that wrench the heart. And she's accomplished all this at the tender age of 28. With 12 books under her belt and four more on the horizon, Victoria breeds envy and garners respect from the most ambitious authors. She's also a hoot, too. Victoria and I were none the wiser to each other prior to our chat, but afterward, we were fast friends. I chalk it up to her cool wit and sincere love of writing, where two kindred sojourners find solidarity in sharing their struggles, insights, and successes. Hers more than mine. Upon this episode's closing ear tickle, you will have gained a renewed confidence toward writing and a heavy bag of writing tricks will weigh down your hands. If you are a fan of Victoria's work, you will have scooped up a precious gemstone through which her stories will appear all the more vivid and enticing. She's also been kind enough to give away some books. I believe we got some signed copies of A Darker Shade of Magic and uh, a couple more. Head over to bleedingink.fm just to sign up for the giveaway and um, I hope you win. Now, here is my interview with Victoria. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I have uh, Victoria Schwab on the podcast today, and I'm super excited to have her. Hi, Victoria. How are you doing? 
Doing well. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I just have a quick story. It's funny because when I released my book, Modern Rituals, um, I, I, I did a, I had I did the net, net galley thing. Oh, yeah. And I remember your book came out like within two days of mine. And I was really super jealous of your color. Uh, sorry, a darker shade of magic. That that book. Yeah. And I was, <laughs> I was going to say, you have to specify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So so and it's funny because you have like that Manila. Uh, it actually has a similar look to mine and but yours is better and and uh, it made me very upset oh sorry. <laughs> well i can't even i can't take any credit you know like that's all uh will stolly who's like one of the most amazing cover designers in the world i love complimenting that cover because it has nothing to do with me so it's not narcissistic <laughs> at all to say that I <laughs> well you still won so at least in my mind and um i'm yeah. very jealous anyways okay so for people who don't may not know who you are um go ahead and you give us a little story about yourself yeah, sure. So my name is Victoria Schwab. I also go by V.E. Schwab um, on various book covers. And I am 28 and I am the author of a dozen books, I guess it is right now. I, I'm, I'm, I should count. I, I kind of like forget to count. Uh, yeah, that's that's good. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> it is a very good problem to have. And I, um, let's see, I've been writing since I was a late teenager. I got my first book deal right after I finished college. And I've been writing ever since. I primarily write fantasy, but really the only common element between my books is the is the fantastical. I grew up wanting the world to be stranger than it was, and because of that, I write the world stranger than it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you um when you first started, so you started writing when in your teens. I did. I actually started writing poetry. Oh. I didn't try my hand at fiction until I was in my late teens. Until I got to college, I didn't try to write my first book-length project until I was a sophomore in college, and I'd never written anything longer than five pages, and I wanted to challenge myself, and so I thought, I wonder if I can write a book, and I did, and it was awful, as I think <laughs> most endeavors at that time should be, uh-huh. um, And but it gave me the confidence to try again a couple of years later, and so when I was a senior in college, I um, started writing a book that would go on to become my very first one. It's called The Near Witch. Wow. And so that was, uh, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're young. Yeah. I, that was in, uh, let's see the near, Witch sold in, Ooh, goodness. 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah so it's like, so yeah, six you, years, seven, and 12, six and a half years and 12 and 12 books since then. Yeah. I have 16 under contract, but I think I'm, I'm a little behind right now, so mm-hmm. I have to get caught up, but yeah, I've been kind of writing ever since then, just kind of sinking my teeth in and refusing to let go. So what, what what inspired you to get into poetry when you were Honestly, I, I kind of, I grew up on Blake. I grew up on really classic, you know, Baudelaire. And, and I just loved it. I loved something about the cadence, the economy of language. And so when I did start writing fiction, that's something I tried to carry forward with me. You know, the notion that if five lines work, one will probably work better. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, to this day, pay a lot of attention, for better or worse, when I'm writing to the syllabolic rhythms and the cadences mm-hmm. and and that kind of nature. I My mom is English, and so I grew up with very much, I, what I would say, a British ear. And I mm-hmm. think the British writers have a kind of cadence to them that I really love and admire. I grew yeah. up obsessed with Neil Gaiman, and mm-hmm. I remember being a poet in high school and picking up Fragile Things, one of his collections, and realizing that you could write multiple forms that you didn't like he was the first author that I was exposed to that didn't stick to one thing and the knowledge that he could be a poet and a a screenwriter and a novelist and a short story writer like there was something so incredibly freeing about that yeah yeah Gaiman 
Damon is, is definitely an inspiration of mine as well. He's he's awesome. He's wonderful. Um, yeah. He's a good so, hug too. <laughs> he's a good what? He's a good hugger. He's a good hugger. He's a very very nice person. He's a very uh, good hugger. That's in, that's a very interesting interesting little fact. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever if you're ever in the same room as Neil Gaiman, just in, just demand a hug. I'm sure I'm that would be like really Victoria well. told me I need to hug you. I he need would to experience hug this. You back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, uh, yeah I, I hope so. Yeah. It's funny because um my wife she uh, she she's uh she works for Library District and she brought him in one time and and um he's he's an interesting guy and she sort of was toting him around to these various events with the the Library District and, and there was this big. I, I'm I'm in Las Vegas, so yeah. keep this in mind. There was this big party that happened later. I think there was a some conference in town that was co-opting with uh, the library district, and and it was cool because like she was at the party with him, and and he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he was sort of a wallflower, and and um, and apparently he was just like totally chill and just the nicest guy, and just very polite the entire time. And and um, it was just really you know it's, it's cool to hear that kind of stuff when when um you know there's someone who has that sort of notoriety. Um, and just, is that down to earth? I think there's a lot of fear of meeting your heroes because so often they, um, they disappoint. And I, I can definitely say that Neil Gaiman has been one of my heroes since I very first started writing. And, uh, I actually, I have a bracelet. I have one of those little like live strong style bracelets that says (laughs) WWNGD, which is is what we Neil Gaiman do. (laughs) And the answer is like, shut up and write, like get back to work, make good work. But um, but I was really nervous the first time I got to meet him because I, I, my, I was at my very first conference world fantasy con in San Diego. And I, I just, I was so scared that he was going to, you know, be bigger than life in, in a way that I was going to be this, this moat, this speck of yeah. a person. Yeah. And, and he wasn't, he was the most genuine and supportive and just one of, just one of the nicest people. And I've had the luxury of meeting him several times since then. And, and I mean, you know, I met him in what I considered to be a fan capacity. I didn't think he even knew that I was a writer and yet I've met him several times and he's, he's, he knows who I am and he has always gone out of his way to be incredibly kind and supportive. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't, I, I can't say enough good things. I think there are a lot of authors out there who are so famous and you meet them and they maybe have lost sight of those. Yeah. But he gives this sense of the fact that you're a colleague. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he really is. He he is on such a level that he wouldn't have to be that kind. Yeah. And that's an unfortunate reality of fame. But but he yeah. is genuinely one of the nicest people I've met. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting, too, because my, my wife would would run across these different authors. And, and another really nice author is David Sedaris. Oh, yeah. Um, I've never met him. Yeah. But he's just like. He has this insatiable curiosity and he will just, he will ask you question after question, but it's very friendly, but he really yeah. wants to know about you because he, you know, he's looking for characters. Of course. For but, it, but, but like, but that's his bag, man. Like he is all about that. And then you have, um, oh my God. Uh, uh, oh geez. How am I forgetting her name? Uh, Princess <laughs> Leia. Hello. Oh What's yeah. This? Yeah. Carrie, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. Thank you. Carrie <laughs> Fisher, you know, and it's interesting because then you meet her and, and that's a totally different world, right? There's, there's yeah. a significant amount of pretense to, to that sort of meeting, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I don't know. I think there's also like the style, the type of fans that, 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 that someone may have, I think might skew your reality of, uh, you know, like it was with her, she's pretty much been just assaulted. Whereas I think Nate, uh, Neil and maybe David, um, just run across people that maybe aren't so fanatic. Maybe Neil yeah. probably does. But uh, I don't know. I think fanaticism might might skew someone's perspective on reality. This is like a kind of an aside. But I think the longer you're a writer, the more you realize that there are 
authors that readers love and authors that authors love. Yep. You know, and I think the difference there is there are some authors out there who are kind of nightmarish, but is, that they're good to their readers. And so they're, and their readers love their books. And so that's all that matters. But the longer you're in the industry, the, the more exposure you have to authors who you just genuinely as an author want to support because they're good people and they don't, you know, their head still fits through the door. They don't have that pretense and that ego. So I think the longer I've been in publishing, the more I've gravitated and the more I've appreciated those authors that, that I want to recommend to other authors, not just right. to readers. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to get your take on that actually. Maybe, maybe in a little bit we can yeah. talk about some more authors, but um, <laughs> so uh, you, you said your mom is from, from England. Is that, yeah. that's right? So did you, did you grow up here in America or where did, did you? I, or? I did. My okay. father is from Beverly Hills, 90210. Like he, Very um, interesting. <laughs> he grew up on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, wow. Like, surrounded by Desi Arnaz and by like all of these movie stars. Oh, neat. Okay. Because he, um, his father ran something called Schwab's Pharmacy which is this really famous establishment in Hollywood where mm -hmm. all of these actors and producers and directors would hang out. So he comes from this, what we call like the Hollywood royalty side, like had a mm -hmm. red Corvette when he was a teenager. Yeah. And my mother was, grew up completely poor, like not a penny to her name in Southern England. And they moved here when she was quite young. They moved to the States. And so I always think they're just the funniest couple because they're so so different. But I grew up mostly in Nashville, Tennessee. So I am like huh. a very strange hybrid. I've grown up in enough places that my accent just has what I would call like a continental flatness to it. Yeah, that's true. You sound very Midwestern, which is yeah. pretty much run of the you mill. <laughs> Until you get me around anyone from Southern England. And uh -huh. then all of a sudden, my accent comes back because I had one. I had an I can, English I can accent. hear it when you're thinking about it. Well, I, I, I think I, <laughs> I... I enunciate my consonants a lot more than most Americans do, I yeah. think, what it is. But I had an accent until I was seven because I grew up surrounded by my mother's family. Mm -hmm. And That's... so I'm this very strange hybrid child, though, because I have... I was technically born in California, raised in Nashville, went to school in St. Louis, lived in New York, Liverpool, and Edinburgh. Oh, wow. And so my, my, my linguistic center doesn't know what to do with me. That's awesome, though. But that gives you, a, a, I think, a, you know, you're saying the ear earlier, that gives, gives you some interesting perspective on how language should sound and also yeah. what it sounds like in your head. <laughs> and I, I think it's interesting that I always gravitate towards English writers. Yeah. And I think that there is, if you study the difference in the, the style of writing, there is very much an Englishness. It comes yeah. through in that, that almost poetic quality, which was one of the things that first attracted me to Neil's writing. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I'm actually reading Joyce right now, James Joyce yeah. Ulysses. And, and I'm, you know, and I, and I just had come over from Faulkner and I'm, and I'm, I'm actually just sort of working through some, some of Joyce's sentences and I'm like, man, you know what? I bet you, I was, I, I bet you, I need to place this in a, an Irish accent. I need to, mm -hmm. I need to sound this out in an Irish accent. Cause this guy, I mean, this is an odd sentence for, for someone with like my sort of accent to sort of say, but with him and, and I started doing that and it's, it's interesting. Cause like, there's definitely, um, I think you're like, whatever accent you have in your mind is going to inform yeah. Um, how the cadence of your writing, which is really interesting to me and how, um, how that could, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that just makes it all the more. It's another it, layer. Yeah. It's another layer to the prose that I don't think always, uh, readers consciously process, but I think they definitely subconsciously process it. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's true. I like English uh, writers as well. Me too. Um, so you, uh, you right now you're with Tor and Harper yes. Greenwillow. Yes. Um, 
And you're writing, you write for like a load of different age groups. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I write for middle schoolers with Scholastic. I um, had the luxury to do my first series with them a couple of few years ago um, for their book clubs and fairs. And that was such a cool experience just Mm -hmm. because I had never had fans that voracious. You get like a 10 year old and you make them love reading and they are like, they are passionate little balls of, of energy. And, um, and so I write, I, I don't have as regular a schedule with Scholastic, but every now and then I'll do projects for Scholastic that I love. And then I write for teens. Um, I write for teens. I, I have written for Disney, Hyperion. I have a series called The Archived. And then now with Greenwillow, um, The Savage Song, which comes out in the summer. And then, yes, I write for, technically write for adults with Tor. And I say technically because... I get asked a lot, um, like, well, why did you choose to go write for adults? Or have you, like, moved on to adults? Have you graduated up? And that frustrates me to no end because, first of all, if, if you look at the YA readership, the vast majority of YA readers are adults. And a lot of adult, like, a lot of readers of adult fantasy are teens. Mm-hmm. And there's this fluidity to the genres. And I think we go in and we impose all of these boundaries in the interest of bookshelves in bookstores Mm -hmm. and having a place to categorically put things. But I really kind of struggle with the categorical delineation of it just because, you know, growing up, I read Robert Ludlum. And now as an adult, I read Lainey Taylor. And (laughs) I, I, one of the reasons that I do write fantasy in the way that I do, I write with a protagonist that are between 18 and 25 usually. And I do that because those are actual young adults. That is the 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 kind of that gateway point. Um, you might be dealing with slightly different issues than you are at sixteen, but it really is kind of a liminal space in life anyway. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, I was very intimidated by adult fantasy because mm-hmm. it felt exclusive. It felt like it was had all of these elements which were testing you to see right. whether you actually deserve to be there. You know, whether it was the Tolkien languages, whether it was the presence of a map, a glossary, whatever it was, it felt like a click, like a club. And I always kind of felt very self-conscious there. And so when I decided I was going to write an adult fantasy, um, I wanted to write something that I considered user-friendly. I wanted to write something that my YA readers, be they adults or teens, could transition into that other section of the bookstore, not graduate up into something, but just if they wanted to explore a different section of the bookstore and they didn't know where to start, I wanted to give them a place to start, a springboard that felt slightly more inclusive. Mm -hmm. So I would say that my YA readers and my adult readers, they blend together. Most of my people who read Vicious and A Darker Shade of Magic on my uh, my adult titles read The Archived as well. I, I don't have clear boundaries between them and I like it that way. Mm-hmm. There are certain elements like with Vicious, my first book for the for tour for the adult market, it has a very dark humor to it. It's mm-hmm. not it's not any darker in terms of actual content than the archived is. The archive is very dark. It's about um a library of the dead and grief and monstrosity and things like that, but it has black humor in Vicious. And I do think that black humor is something we develop later in our teens. I don't think that as a 14-year-old, I had a really good sense of black humor, but I know that as an 18-year-old, I did. And so that's why that book ended up in the section of the store that it did. But ever since then, I've just tried very hard to make sure that there's a fluidity between my different books, even if they're in different sections of the store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I, there, yeah. you know, going back to Neil, there is one thing that Neil Gaiman said, uh, was quoted on, and I think it's a little bit of a privileged stance to be able to take, but it's something that I've held on to nonetheless, which is he said at one point that the only thing he wanted his books to have in common was his name on the cover. <laughs> and I, I like that. I like yeah. this idea that that is the only common thread between yeah. my books. Yeah, that's great. It's funny. I actually wanted to bring it up before. Have you seen Neil Gaiman's um, library, the pictures of his sort of his study? Where yes. He, where he writes? So cool. It's amazing yeah. and like overwhelming. There's a yeah. lot of books there. There's a ton of books there, but it's like, it's, it's almost like it doesn't, it's not, it's unsurprising though. You, you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, I could totally see him living in that space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, it definitely matches his sort of, his sort of vibe. And it's kind of like a basement. Like it's very cozy yeah. and nookish. It doesn't yeah. have like the beauty and the beast library quality. No. Yeah. It's definitely not like fancy pants, Englishman with the wainscoting and all that stuff. No, it's, it's more, like, more like this man whole... was found buried by books. Like. Exactly. And that, 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 I think that's the way it should be. Like it should just be a bit, a bit chaotic, you know? Yeah. And he's got sort of his, his awards and stuff just sort of thrown <laughs> amongst all the it. other items. Love it's pretty it. cool. Yeah. It's great. So out of all these books um, that you've written, like which one, which of them do you feel is your greatest accomplishment? Like, oh man, that's so what's made hard. you the happiest. Which of your children do you love most? Okay, so <laughs> so it's a it's a divided thing, right? So mm-hmm. my two most recent are obviously the Darker Shade of Magic series. The second mm-hmm. one, Gathering of Shadows, is just about to come out, and and it's hard because in some ways I feel like it's my strongest, and I love the characters. But Vicious will always hold a very special place for me mm-hmm. because I wrote Vicious with no intention to see it published. I was going through a really hard time mm-hmm. um, editing The Unbound, the sequel to The Archived, and I felt like I had no creative energy and I felt very stifled, as you often do when you're under contract and there's people and expectation and deadlines. And so... I started writing Vicious one day just as a as a head clearing project for myself. And because I had no anticipation of it getting published, there was no pressure. And I made it as strange as I wanted to be and as dark as I wanted to be. And I didn't care whether it was sellable. It's this super villain origin story. Um, oh, yeah. Very, very dark about two med students who discover that the key to superpowers are near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And so they set out to manufacture their own abilities by controlling their own suicides and resurrections. Interesting. And it's okay. it's it's really sick and twisted. I wanted to see if I could create two villains, no hero, and make them both horrible people and then see which one people would root for. <laughs> because I think there's like an inevitability that you root for somebody. Yeah. And so I just I figured out in the course of writing it that we don't actually care as readers what people do. We care why they do it. Yeah. And so it really comes down to an issue of the motives behind these two murderous villains. And sure enough, like I was able to to dictate which one people would root for based on based on those motives. But the whole thing was just this elaborate exercise and this fun, fun project. And I kept it secret for two and a half years uh-huh. um, while I was working on it. It's got this really complicated braided narrative structure um, so that it's meant to feel like a comic book without pictures. And mm-hmm. it was such a challenge and it was so joyous. And it wasn't until I finished it that I decided, okay, that did what it would, what I needed it to do for me. Mm-hmm. So only now, like, 
if I want it to be read by somebody else, I can. Like it was very important to me in the course of writing it that nobody else knew about it. And so I sent this email to my agent and she was like, oh God, I don't know, man. Like <laughs> I was writing YA at the time and I was like, I wrote a supervillain origin story, except I wasn't very good about explaining it at that point because it was still pretty early. And bless her, my agent Holly Root was like, okay, I'll take a look at it. And I sent it to her and she was like, I have no idea what you've done here, but I think it's really cool. Like, I don't know if it's publishable because the general rule is if you're not writing in an existing canon for comics, like you can't really get it published. Like there's there's a place on the shelf for existing canon works, but it's almost always in comic form. This was a novel and she was like, I have no idea if we can get this published. And my editor at Tor took a flyer, took a chance on it. And I mean, it just it makes me so happy to see it on shelves. It makes me so happy when people come up and they tell me how much they love Victor Vale, who's the main villain. Mm -hmm. And just the idea that for so long he was mine and then to get to share him only when I was ready was mm -hmm. a luxury that a lot of career authors don't really get once they are under contract. You very mm -hmm. rarely get to carve out that time or that kind of love and that opaqueness. I would say everything feels like you're writing in a glass sphere. And so to have that level of opaqueness, that book will always have a really special place in my heart. And the fact that it's actually sold and it's currently in development for a movie, who knows if it'll happen, but like, wow. it's, it's just really cool. Like for so long, it was just a secret. Yeah. yeah so, great. yeah. Had they, had they sort of denied you, would you have maybe thought of self published it or? You know, it's so interesting because I, I, I have, I have no, you know, personal dilemma with self-publishing at all. Even though I'm up to this point a traditionally published author, I intend right. to self-publish the third volume in the archive series. But I, I don't know. Like it was the idea of publishing Vicious was an afterthought for me because of, like, I had just really enjoyed the writing of it. I might have serial serially released it. Yeah. Like, it would have worked as a serial. I don't think I would have charged for it. It was just a fun thing. Right. Um, it was, I was proud enough of it by that point that I probably would have found some format to release it in. Yeah. But I don't know. I, like I say, the whole thing was just a very, very strange process. And it happened to coincide with me having a really difficult time with the archive series um, at Disney. And so I was very lucky that it found a home because I kind of needed a home at that yeah. point, you know? Let's, let's, I actually, I'm, I'm curious about this book now. And, and you said the braided narrative, like how, yeah. how did you explain your creative process for how you <laughs> approach that? And, and also the end result, do you mean there was like very small sort of, um, chunked sections yeah. of chapters that are so, not chapters, but more scenes? Yeah, like how, so how was it? here's the thing. It's um, first of all, it the answer to how did you do that was slowly, painstakingly, and very <laughs> wrong. Like it was so trial and error. I knew what I wanted, and I didn't know how to get there. Yeah. So the book is set in three timelines. Uh, right. Ten years ago, when the mm -hmm. two main characters are med students in college mm -hmm. and are coming up with this process and this procedure for creating superpowers. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, when one of them is breaking out of prison for murder and mm. the other one is going on a massacring spree of all superheroes he could find oh, wow. and the timelines between. So there are other characters who have things that happen in the timelines between 10 years ago and modern and now. And so the first half of the book is focused on those three. And the second half of the book takes place over the course of 24 hours as the paths finally collide and the two characters are chasing each other. 
So it's like the whole thing is this braided narrative that runs into a ticking clock. Uh-huh. And it, it, it was either going to work or it wasn't going to work. It was one right. of those things where sometimes when you're close but off, everything is off. Yep. So yep. it took a very long time. The scenes are, the chapters are very short. They average two to three pages. Okay. Yeah. So it's this sense of flickering images. Right. Like a comic um, book. Every, yeah, exactly. Every now and then you get like a 10 page chapter, but it, it's weird how it broke down in the end. I don't know if my brain was just playing tricks on me, but that first part and the second part are exactly the same length, like down to the page. Oh, wow. Like down to the page. So it's the weirdest thing ever. And I knew exactly how I wanted it to start and how I wanted it to end. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Um, yeah. That's it's awesome. Just, I don't know, but it was like, I like in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I'm so cool. I can't believe I pulled that off. In the middle of it, I was like crying every day yep. because I could not make this book do what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wrote the first hundred pages three times. Oh, wow. Because I, the book was wrong. When I right. first started it, it was, it was this, they were, were, it was very cliche. Like the whole, the thing that Vicious balances on is that it's self-aware and playing with comic book tropes. Yeah, but there's a thin line between that and actually buying into tropes. Yes, and so the yeah, original- I struggled with that with with my first book big time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so hard. And the original opening, like these were they were med students, but they were helping somebody else. There was very much like a Professor X kind of <laughs> higher power character that they were helping, and so it made them too much pawns. And originally, the whole way that Vicious came about was I wanted to write about a world in which you know, superpowers had been achieved this way and it followed an entirely different character. And it just so happened that he came to this city, Merritt, which is the my kind of Gotham, and um, and these two gangs, the heroes and the villains, tried to recruit him. And the heroes weren't heroic. They just had chosen that name first, which means that the villains had gotten labeled the villains by, like, process of elimination. And it was only in me sitting down and trying to write the backstory of the leaders of these two gangs did I come upon the story, the real yeah. story I wanted to tell, which was about right. Victor and Eli. Yeah. This is very, very roundabout. In retrospect, I get to feel super shiny. And at the time I was like, what, what am I doing? (laughs) Well, I think, I think that's part of the journey. I mean, the writing or any creative process really that, you know, you're going to be, you know, banging your head against the wall and you're like, there's just no end in sight. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to just end it all. And then suddenly, you know, you, you just, you divert and you, and you, you start to, you just change directions and you go into another mode and then your subconscious kicks in. And you don't, you didn't yeah. realize it. And suddenly once that engine starts roaring, you know, um, you'll be in the shower and suddenly be like, wait a minute. <laughs> Showers <laughs> you know, are magical things. Showers and walks. Yeah. Those both, are the two things. Yeah. I, yeah. Every writer and every creative person ever should always do those. I think every you day. end up having to just kind of trust your brain. Like I've started, like, it's not that writing gets easier, but I have been become able to listen When, um, like when I have a gut feeling that something isn't working right? rather than being like, Oh no, 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 I know better. Like sure enough, my brain is always right when it's like, this isn't working. Right. And so, and so sometimes it's about giving yourself permission to like, to write what's not working and then process of elimination wise, find out how to do it better. Yes. Um, there's a whole, there's no right way to write, you know, it's just, but you do learn to at least like listen to that internal system of like what what do i do now yeah it's interesting because um for me like this i think you're talking about just like you know listening to your intuition and and getting you know listening to your gut is that what you're saying 
Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. You have so, to listen to it. Right. And the thing is, though, is I think a lot of people sort of disregard that those feelings because they're just feelings, right? They're, they're not quantitative. They're just sort of this qualitative thing. Yeah. And and I read this book by Jonah Lehrer, who's a neuroscientist guy, uh, called How We Decide. Yeah. And his argument was that um, this that when our subconscious is done processing things, when our when our sorry our, our frontal cortex mm-hmm. um, is 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 has has done billions of calculations and spits out the answer, it does not come in the form of a thought. It comes in the yeah. form of a feeling, and the feelings are the result of that, and they are quantitative in that respect. And he breaks it all down. It was mm-hmm. really a beautiful book, and I didn't realize that because I'd always sort of like. Um, been suspicious of those yeah. of those feelings, and that book was just like no, just double down on them and commit to it. And ever since I've done that, you know, it, it, it a whole new perspective and and change how I, how I approach you know problem solving. Yeah, it and, makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, you really have to learn to listen to that inner. You know, I guess that's what you would call your muse too. Well, uh, it's process. It's it's process as well. Like I'm on my eleventh book right now, and like mm-hmm. maybe I didn't know how to listen to that voice at yeah. book two. But the thing is, it is it is eleven for eleven. Never yeah. steered me wrong. And right. I am lucky enough to have a good enough editor that if for some reason I don't listen to that voice, you better believe one of the first things out of my editor's mouth is this part's not working. And then right. I knew it. It's, and so I think so much of it is having the reinforcement of yeah. proof. Yeah, It's very hard to listen, to differentiate between the different voices in your head, the ones that yeah. telling you you suck and the ones yeah. that telling you this one thing isn't working. Yeah, they're both and, really loud. <laughs> and not group them all into doubt and brush them away or right. collapse under them. Mm-hmm. And I think the only really way to get used to differentiating between those voices is just is just practice. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it just comes down to just doing it, just practicing. <laughs> yeah. That really, that really uh, that'll get you there. Um, so do you, what, do you use any tools to, to write with? Like, do you use Scrivener? Do you I use do Word? use Scrivener. I yeah. use Scrivener because I've crashed words so many times because I'm the kind of person that needs to compartmentalize. So every time I have a new scene, I need it to be on a separate piece of paper. Me too. I'm yeah. exactly the same and way. And so you get to like 48 documents open in Word and it will crash. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so I started using Scrivener super reluctantly because I yeah. don't actually use any of the tangential things that Scrivener gives you, any of those, you know, visual boarding and all of those things. I don't use any of them. The only thing I use Scrivener for is the ability to make separate documents for each scene. Yeah. When that's exactly how I got into Scrivener because I've always been like, um, ever since high school, actually when I, ever since I learned how to make an outline, like a bolded nested outline, I I realized that's like how my brain works is outlines, Um, not necessarily for structuring a novel, which I do use outlines, but I kind of go both pantsing and, and outlining. But, Mm -hmm. but um, the thing is though, is I saw Scrivener and I was like, oh my God, there's, there's nested documents, there's nested scenes and I can, and that's all I, that's all I needed. That was, that was the one key piece. um, And I was like, I can write a book in this, this software will enable me to write a book. Because I can't. The only thing that it lets me cheat a little bit in the worst way, though, because my tendency, if I'm stuck, is to just switch to a different scene. So I'll just open a new document and like doodle some notes. And then all of a sudden I'm working on the third book in Darker Shade right now. And I have like I have like 125 (laughs) scene pieces and they're all out of order. And now I have to go back in and like actually drag myself into focus. It's interesting because I just wrote an article about how to how to be a master outliner and scrivener. And I go into the three different modes and. And I think I think actually once people see that, um, like once they get once they get their mind around that, it's it's uh, it's a whole new world. <laughs> like it's, 
Yeah. yeah. I love what you're saying about like sometimes a pants or sometimes an outliner. I'm, I call it connect the dots. Yeah. So basically That's... it's that, like, I don't start a project until I have five to 10 scenes, points or plot moments that I yep. know the book needs in order to be the book I want to write. And yep. then I allow myself to find my way between those points so that That's I so have funny. enough yeah, creative I, freedom. I, in the article, I call them waypoints, right? Yeah. So you, you basically just, you can sketch out a narrative, right? And you sketch out these sort of major movements and then, and then you just, you, I like to call it leaving room for epiphany because like, exactly. I think that, right. I, I like to, so when I write, there are moments where I don't want to be focused on any waypoint. I just want to be in the moment, in the words right then and there and just let them come, you know, and yeah. sort of leave room for that epiphany to happen. And I think if you're too structured, you know, then that you just, you do, you constrict that process. Oh, definitely. And, and so the waypoints are sort of, it's a sort of a loose way of, of, of having both best of both worlds. And, and that's, I think, for me, and it sounds like for you, you know, that it's, it's, that's just a beautiful process. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, like from a, just from a technical standpoint, like I cannot afford emotionally or physically to wander 50,000 words in the wrong direction. Oh no. Yeah. Right. And, no, like, no that's way. what people who pants do is yeah, like, dude, I can't like do it. Oh, I just had to delete this entire draft and I would, I would have a panic attack. Yeah. No, I, I would yeah, I I'd pass out. <laughs> you have to have room for epiphany because you know, it's the best part you know, the best part of writing, the things that you will almost never have to edit as much are ones that just came to you Mm -hmm. when you weren't trying to nail them down. You know, they're the little twists. I don't think, I think it's very hard. Um, so I always beat myself up when I'm writing first drafts because I can never think of all my twists because that's not what a first draft is actually for, (laughs) but I, I want to be able to do the twists right the first time. And it's impossible because those, so many of those twists and those little, um, those pieces, they come together when you leave room for them. They don't come together out of planning because you can't plan for every single twist or else you'd be boring. Right. It would be boring because if you could see the twist coming before you wrote some of the framework, your reader would see the twist coming. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of it too. Like sometimes you need to write without knowing what's happening next um, so that it feels like that for the reader. Because of that, the only things that I make sure that I I write first in the book are the first scene and the last scene. (laughs) Like I, I there's your waypoints. Those are my my immovable waypoints because for me the only thing is, and I'll change the first scene. I almost never change the last scene because if I don't, if I don't have something exciting to write to, if -hmm. I don't know where it ends, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I get so afraid of not landing the ending that like I use an I use a written ending as the thing that keeps me excited about getting there. Right when the yeah. rest of the book sucks right. or else I would just bail. But if I have that moment that I'm like, but I have to keep going because look what I'm going to, it's going to be so wonderful when yeah. I pay off with this ending. Yeah. I, that's what keeps me going on really bad days. That's, that's crazy that, that you it's so similar to, to how I, how I approach this. It's really neat to hear that, hear this sort Validation. of in another person's mind. <laughs> it's, 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 it's comforting. It's validating. It's, and we, we, we write, writing is so solitary and there are so many out, people out there who will tell you there, this is the way to write. Mm-hmm. And like I say, they're the only way, the only right way is whatever works for you. But it's really validating when you hear other people are as neurotic about it as you are. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, I was going to say, you, you say you like to sketch out the narrative. Do you have, um, so there's, there's, there's obviously structure books out there, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of will outline genre conventions or obligatory scenes. Um, do you, do you have any system where you're like, okay, I know I need to hit I'm writing this kind of book. It's this genre. I need I need at least four scenes that um, match, 
you know, sort of the audience's expectations? Do you ever, does that ever go through your mind or, or what are the scenes that you sort of lay out? To be honest, like this drives one of my friends crazy because she's like a massive structure and has studied like the, you know, the acts yeah. and the nine steps, what the, all of the different sure. grids. I go by, I go by my heart. Yeah. Like I, I really try to write as I read. Yeah. So I'm always writing for myself as the first reader. I know what works for me as a reader. Yeah. I know what plucks my heartstrings. I know what gets me invested. I know what gets me excited. And I make sure that I'm writing to that. Mm-hmm. So I, it's the only time I am a very type A person. I'm a very like math and science driven person, mm-hmm. but it's the only time when I really put all of that aside. And I ask myself like up the stakes, what do I need? What does this scene need? What does this character need? And I try and just listen. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have a very intuitive foundation of the three acts. I have a very, but I, I will never go through one of my stories and think, where is the false victory? Where yeah. is, have I hit the point at which this the, is expected to yeah, happen? The point and of no return. Yeah. The mentor. And I know that the, I know all of them. I studied the Jungian archetypes. I studied yep. all of these things, but when I'm actually writing, I think that would kill my joy yeah. if I sat there and said, and what is the point where step six of the nine steps of fiction happens. I couldn't do it. And yet, if you look at most of my books, I almost always have them all. Right. I just have to listen. And I think it's that I'm a massive consumer. Like I read, I read roughly a hundred books a year. I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of movies and I try and digest everything as a reader and a writer. So I am very, very conscious of how it works in everything else that I consume. And then by studying everything else, I kind of give myself the freedom to not study as I'm writing. I want it to just, I want to feel my way through it. And I get to do that because I've given myself so much material to pull from. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense? Like I study everything else. Well, you know, I think even, even, um, non-writers just, just, I, I think story is throwing at us so much in the society, you know, um, that even, even just anyone has a, a natural, they themselves will have at least a natural or a, a basic idea of, of, of narrative, right? They're, they're yeah. going to, and, and they may not be able to, you know, vocalize it or, or say like, here's the actual steps, but they had, there's, they can, they can intuit, right? They yeah. Can, they, they can, can feel it. it. They can, they can feel, feel, it. feel it. And, um, I think, and also too, I think it's really important, uh, as a writer to read a ton. Right. Yeah. And, um, and and consume a lot because I think that just reinforces that that uh, the intuition. But I agree. I I, th- I kind of look at my subconscious as like this the little engine that could that that yeah. also I don't get to, I don't get to talk to it. Like I just I just feed it some coal exactly. or whatever. Maybe exactly. <laughs> you know, and just let it go, and it, it's going to do its thing. And then suddenly it'll report back. And, and um, I I found that um, in all of my creative endeavors, that's been a real solid strategy. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's made it's it's uh, helped me be a lot s- smarter than I actually am. <laughs> I think I think feeding your writer brain is so important. I don't reread books most often, but when I, don't I either I but, but when no, I watch a we, movie, yeah, I will watch it twice. Okay, and I watch it the first time just as a consumer, and then because I'm a fairly cinematic writer, so I kind of choreograph, I process my books as though they were movies when yeah. I'm writing them. Mm-hmm. So then when I watch a movie that I like a second time, I dissect it scene by scene. What's working? all of it. Like I study it. Uh Um, And so I think I look at all of that as feeding my writer brain. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself um, like seeing a particular scene in a movie and going like, Oh, I'm totally stealing that. That's going to become a scene in the book. (laughs) 
I, I never, I, I, usually it's a character, but you know what? Even more often than that, it's like a still frame of a character because I don't mm-hmm. actually want someone's character. I want the way that that character looked in a coat. Like I'm yeah. obsessed with outerwear in my books. It's like a running theme that like my characters have incredible coats. The opening <laughs> line of Darker Shade is Kel wore a very peculiar coat. His, his coat, it, it has infinite sides to it so he can turn it inside out. It becomes different coats. Uh-huh. Um, he won it in a card game. And, <laughs> and so like, but I remember one of the first images I had for it was Lee Pace in Pushing Daisies in this amazing black trench coat. And Lee Pace was an original visual cue for Kel, my main character. And so, like, I, I, will, I have a still frame of that. Like, I love, I love to steal pictures yeah. of, or I love to steal facial expressions. I love to steal songs. Like, yeah. and I almost never pull them from actual books. I usually pull them from, like, a dance number on So You Think You Can Dance. You know, <laughs> like, there's a certain thing. I think we get. Good old stories. Nigel. I think we get stories in certain ways. The archive yeah. was totally based it was like originally inspired by a dance number on so you think you can dance called um called gravity yeah and it was I, like, I think i saw that it was, a to- it was about abusive relationships and oh, I, I totally and saw that was that a yeah. mia michaels yeah, no, that, yeah. or was it sonia it was um i think it was sonia i think it was sonia it was incredible and it was all about addiction yep i remember and that my the two two of the characters in the archive have an extremely abusive relationship yeah. And it was entirely inspired by that dance number. So you just never know where it's going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing that, that, that you took and wrote a book based on that. that dance yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, for someone who wants to start writing, you know, what, what would be the first piece of advice that you would give them? Oh, goodness. Um, start. Seriously, just like open a document and start. I think there's a sense that you have to know what you're doing. And like, nobody knows what they're doing when they start. I still don't know what I'm doing when I start a new project, you know? (laughs) But I think, I think the first thing is obviously to start and to not make excuses for it. I hate, oh, but I don't have time. I didn't have time. Like, I still don't have time. You make time if it's important to you. You don't ever find time. Time is not like a gold coin in a Mario game. Like, you don't, you're not just like, oh, yay, time. (laughs) Like, nobody finds time. Um, And then I think the other thing is like, Come hell or high water, get to the end. There are all of these steps where a book tries to convince you to quit. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's the 10,000 words and sometimes it's 20,000 words. Sometimes it's 50,000 words. Sometimes it's just continuous. For me, it's usually at the 100 page and the 200 page mark. My book tries to convince me I want to go play with something new. It's the middle. It's this middle slog, man. It's the worst. It's like the middle slog, but it's also I think that the story starts to become familiar to you. Yeah. And so it loses some of that sheen of like the new and shiny and exciting. (laughs) But I think if a beginning writer can just get to the end of a first draft, it's so empowering to one, have survived it. Yep. And two, the thing you have to remember is you can't fix something until you have something to fix. Like yep. you cannot fix a blank page. You yep. cannot make a blank page better. But once yep. you have some words on the page, then you can. Yeah. So I think just getting words down and not worrying about writing it in order, not knowing about how everything happens. I write most of my books for the first half of the book. I write it out of order because I'm yeah. getting all of these different building blocks. Cool. I didn't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And then I switch to order and then I start stitching everything together. Would there be any sort of learning materials or resources um, that you would 
recommend like books or anything or courses? I know everybody recommends on writing Stephen King. And like I say, it's hard for me to recommend these things because I don't use them. So yep. I don't really like to recommend things I don't actually use myself. I, yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, yeah. if, if your thing is, hey, I just read a lot. But honestly, <laughs> what I would recommend is like find your medium of choice, mm-hmm. whether you actually want to like sit and reread books or rewatch movies or rewatch TV shows and consume them twice. Like go through it once as a consumer and then go back through it with a writer's eye and pick apart, choose things that you feel like don't work and choose things that you feel like do work and then sit there and figure out what it is. Like I was reading Brandon Sanderson. Yep. I was reading Mistborn. I was actually listening to it. I'm really geeking out right now because the audiobook narrator for Brandon Sanderson is my new audiobook narrator. Oh, and I that's got awesome. absolute all body chills listening to Gathering of Shadows with Michael Kramer's voice. But I was wow. I was reading Mistborn. And I, and for people that don't know, Brandon Sanderson's books are long as hell. Like the Way of King series, I think the first one's 800 pages and the second one's like a thousand. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's long for me. I use like my books around 500 pages max. And, but I finished Way of Kings and I didn't want it to be over. I couldn't tell Hmm. you what the plot was. I didn't care about the plot, but I was so invested in the characters that I literally would have just sat there and read them like doing whatever they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And that was a major revelation for me as a writer that at the end of the day, if we don't care about the people, we don't care about what's happening to them. We might in the moment in the way that we like a shitty TV show, but like it doesn't stick with us. Yeah. You know, whereas like I want to write books that stick with the readers. So I focus like most of my books are really character driven. The idea being if you don't click with the characters, then the series isn't going to be for you. But mm-hmm. if you love the characters by the end of book one, then you're going to want to come back for more, not just because of the plot, but because you want more of these people. Yeah. You know, so I think I you just you you have to be a student, you yeah. know, if you want to write. Of course, you have to read, but it's not the only thing you have to do. You have to consume sure. stories in every form that you can. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so, so what, what what's on the horizon for you? You said you had a book coming out in uh, June, was it? Yeah, so I've got A Gathering of Shadows, which is the sequel to A Darker Shade of Magic, is actually coming out next week. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> kind of here. totally overwhelmed by that right now. I'm going on my first national book tour Oh, so wow. I'm kind of terrified. I'm going to be in 12 cities. That's great. Yeah. So if um, my tour is posted online, but people should come see me because it, it will be fun, I swear. Yeah. And um, so that's the sequel to Darker Shade of Magic, which is the one. Of, it's about multiple Londons and a magician who can move between them and a, mm. and a thief and a pirate and a lot of bad shit. Mm. And um, then the Savage Song is my next YA book, and it's coming out July 5th. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I haven't figured out my tour schedule for that yet, but it should be really exciting. It's about a city where violent acts start breeding actual monsters. Oh, wow. So it's about repercussion and humanity and monstrosity and what it means to be human. And the two main characters are um, a teenage girl who wants to be monstrous. She wants to take over her father's empire and a boy who actually is a monster, a product of violence and who wants nothing more than to be human. Wow. So, yeah, I'm really excited. And then that sounds awesome. I'm yeah. currently writing the third book in the Darker Shade series, and I'm working on the sequel to Vicious, which I'm very, very excited about my supervillain origin story. Nice. Finally, has its sequel coming? Yeah. 
Are you coming through Vegas by chance? No, not this ah. time. But I wish. I wish. I'm going yeah. all the way down the West Coast. No Vegas. Yeah. Well, so it's 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 not the most literary <laughs> city. <laughs> but it's Vegas. It's so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Unless you live yeah. here. <laughs> then you stay far, far away from the fun. <laughs> all right. Well, um, where can people find out more about you? You said you had your... Schedule posted online? Yeah. Honestly, the easiest place to probably find me is on Twitter because I feel like I live inside the internet at this mm-hmm. point. But I, I have a blog, um, but my Twitter is just V-E Schwab, uh, V-E-S-C-H-W-A-B. Uh, and that's really how I am on most things. I'm on Instagram and Tumblr and Facebook and all, all kinds of things. But if they just search for V-E Schwab, that's usually me. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I saw you had a pretty active Twitter profile. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, as my editors continually are like, please get off Twitter. Please get off Twitter and write your book. <laughs> like, I see you spend a lot of time on Twitter today. Yeah, that's that's the one bad thing about uh, social media is that people can track you, track yeah. you down, figure out what you're doing. <laughs> All right, well, this this has been just the best. This has oh, been a phenomenal little been so talk. Much fun. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing you know, what you're doing and, and how you go about it. Um, you have a very clear and brilliant mind. It's, it's just nice to hear. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, to chat with you. I can't, we have very, very similar writing styles. Yeah, well, I hope maybe. <laughs> we have at least a similar approach. I hope my writing yeah. is is uh, you know, similar to your style. Everyone but, should listen to us and go out there and, and do as we say. Yes, we are, we, are the, we are the ultimate um, say. I yes, that's, exactly. Um, that's, exactly. That's where we've arrived. Two is proof, you know. Yeah. There's yeah, two of us. We're doing the same us. thing. So, yeah. so it works for everyone in the world ever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to actually have you on the show again, maybe some other time, and we can talk more it. and dive deeper into some, some of these other topics. I would love to. I would yeah. love to. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedinginc.fm. That's www.bleedinginc.fm. If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. And if you like what you're hearing, share the show. My goal is to get this show into the hands of as many writers as possible. So share it with your friends, your family, other writers you know, and let's make this happen. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for JS Leonard. jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. The ink is run dry. See you next time.